oh, he took it. I was going to make fun of you, Greg. He has a big, giant, like, 7-Eleven big gulp cup right here that's got, like, some wrestler on the front from 7-Eleven. So uh, I had a whole routine to start my sermon off, and I turn around, and it's gone. What do you guys want to talk about? <laughs> How's it going? Welcome to South Valley Community Church. My name is Isaac. Um, before we get started, we're in the second week of a series in Isaiah. Um, just want to remind everybody that we have three things going on, and you can grab a little um, pamphlet thing in the back as, as well as small group curriculum, but we have a reading plan that we want the church to be on for the book of Isaiah, and you can get all that info as, as you leave. There's also a memorization chapter that we're trying to, to come together as a church and memorize a chunk of Isaiah. You can get that info in the back, as well as there's in that same pamphlet, it opens up and produces a map of the literary structure of the book of Isaiah. That map is also printed like super big giant uh, as you walk out. It'll be to your right. It's on the wall. But it's also we can kind of saturate ourselves in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be here for quite some time. We started the series last week. And <clears throat> this week we actually start chapter one, because if you're here last week, we didn't even touch the book of Isaiah to start the book of Isaiah. So quick uh, kind of backtrack before we get, we get started. We talked a bit about this last week with the book of, of Genesis, but I, I got to just remind us all as we're reading Isaiah to remember that there's this other story going on. Isaiah has a story, but the story of Isaiah takes place in the context to a much larger story. And the story of Isaiah takes place in the story of Genesis. So, the Bible begins with God creating heavens and earth. Everything is great. Cre creation is, is full of life, teeming with potential. He puts his image bearers, God puts image bearers, Adam and Eve, into creation. He tells them to have responsibility and dominion over creation. He says, there's going to be a way out. You don't have to serve me. I'm not going to force my love upon you. So he puts this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, into the garden and says, look, you, could, you can do pretty much anything you want, have a wonderful life, live for eternity with me. Um, just whatever you do, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you do that, you're going to die, you're going to be separated from me, there's all going to be all these horrible consequences. There's a way out. You don't, you don't have to serve God. In the story, a serpent is injected into the storyline and the plot. And, and Genesis doesn't tell you anything about this serpent, this snake. Oftentimes, we immediately start asking questions like, you know, who is this, the snake? Or if you're, you've been a Christian for a long time, you go, oh, that's not really, that's really the devil disguised. And so you start doing all this stuff to the text that the story doesn't want you to do. In Genesis, it doesn't tell you where he came from, what's his motivation, what's kind of his inner logic, all it tells you is that all of a sudden, in the midst of God's beautiful creation, a serpent enters the story. And the serpent tells Eve, like, dude, God's probably holding out on you. Like, I'm telling you, you can eat of that tree, and you're not going to die. God, God uh, is holding back something from you, and it's a way to doubt his goodness. It's a way to doubt his word. And ultimately, Eve and Adam eat of the tree. And there's all kinds of questions that Genesis doesn't answer that we usually, like, if you were a Christian, if you were raised Christian, like, at some point very early on, you asked, like, well, what type of fruit was it, right? Like, as a kid, you're just like, what would make humanity turn against this loving God? Like, that, that had to at least been a mango, 
Like, it's got to be good. But, but it's not like a... I'm trying to think of a fruit that isn't... I like pomegranates, but they take work. And, and work wasn't, it wasn't a burden back then. So uh, there is, by the way, a way to like cut a pomegranate. I don't know why I'm talking about this. You can cut a pomegranate like in like a special way, and then like you hit it on top, and the pomegranate opens up. It's really cool. Just Google that. Um, so Genesis doesn't answer these, these, these questions that we're asking, but it, it's answering different sets of questions. And so Adam and Eve rebel against God, and then God shows up, and he gives a curse to the serpent. Now, this is, this is the part that's absolutely critical. God says to the serpent that one day the seed of the woman is going to bruise or crush or strike the head of the serpent. And in doing so, the serpent will bruise or strike at the heel of the seed of the woman. So right now, picture this in your mind. There's going to be someone who's, who's going to hit the serpent on the head, and when he does so, the serpent's going to strike his foot. Genesis, from that point, starts tracing the line of two different types of people. There is the seed of the woman, and then there is the seed of the serpent. And we talked about this last week, but the seed of the serpent is not baby snakes. It's a key word here. The Hebrew word for seed is zera. And zera literally means seed. It, can, it also means offspring, your children, but it's literally a seed you plant in the ground and grows into something. There is going to be seed or offspring of the women, of the woman, and they're going to be like team God, team woman. And then there's going to be offspring or the seed of the serpent, where we call them team serpent or team snake, sort of like good guys and bad guys. And they're going to be at war with each other. Genesis says there's going to be enmity between the two. There's friction and tension between the two. But even though these two lines are facing each other, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, one day someone is going to come and strike the serpent on the head. And in doing so, his heel will be wounded. Put these images into your mind. Like, if you can, depending upon how good your imagination is, like picture, like a dude stomping on uh, the, the head of a, of a snake. Picture a person doing that. The snake striking at it. You're going to see in a moment, the biblical prophets, the, the Hebrew Bible, it gives you images again and again and again and again. And oftentimes, we don't allow ourselves to, to like, picture the metaphor picture the image. And when we, we fail to picture the image, we're not really going to understand what the text is trying to do. So you have those two lines, and in the book of Genesis, immediately it starts telling you the story of these two lines. The first story after the fall, after Adam and Eve, is a story, saw something moving in the corner of my eye, is the story of those two seeds at war. What's the story? Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And if you read, read that story, that's what they're trying to get you to see that. And then after that story, there's genealogies. And there's this genealogy with, like, bad people, Team Serpent, a guy named Lamech who is a polygamist. He kills somebody. He speaks blasphemous language over God. And then there's this other line that produces this guy named Enoch who walks with God, and it produces Noah. And there's all these good guys happening. Now, what most people miss, though, is as Genesis goes on, very, very fastly in a narrative sense, Everyone becomes team serpent. Like everyone chooses 
to define good and evil in their own eyes. Everyone tries to kick God out of their life, and everyone aligns with the will of the serpent. And so God, in Genesis chapter 12, picks a guy named Abraham, and he says, okay, Abraham, it's going to be through you and your people. You're going to walk with me. I am going to be in relationship with you. I'm going to be like a husband to you, and you're going to be my bride. And through your people, Abraham's people, ethnic Israel, that's why, by the way, the Old Testament is primarily like 99% about Jewish people, is because it's God working in the line of Abraham to bring about the offspring that will destroy the serpent, destroy evil. Okay, that is the story that's in the back of your brain. Now, you see something. If you open up to Genesis and the only thing you're caring about is, how old is the earth or were those seven days literal? Those are all good questions that you can debate and have fun with. But when you ask those first and foremost, you actually blow right by the storyline of what Genesis is trying to communicate. Those other questions are important, but oftentimes we're asking so many modern questions upon this ancient text that we leave behind what it's trying to get you to think about. The serpent and the seed, Abraham, Israel, they're going to be the people that defeat the serpent. Flash forward, 1,500 years from when God says this to Abraham, Israel is a nation. Thousands, tens of thousands of people, their capital is Jerusalem. 1,500 years after the promise made to Abraham, a prophet by the name of Isaiah is given a message from the Lord. Isaiah 1.1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Do you think Isaiah's message to Israel 1,500 years after the promise is going to be a message of, dude, you guys are truly the seed of the woman. You're so awesome. You follow the Lord in all of your ways, and you're upright and outstanding in all you do. You've been a Christian a long time. You know that's not how the story goes. It's the same story again and again and again. It's Adam and Eve choosing to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, choosing to define right and wrong in their own eyes. This is the message of prophet Isaiah speaking to Israel, God's holy covenant people. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, we could miss this really easy, but this is like scary, epic language. In Hebrew, this is a kind of, it's a law court image. When you call upon these witnesses, you're supposed to picture a judge sitting like at court and he's calling in the witnesses. But rather than calling in like, second cousin Bubba, you were there the night of this at the barbecue, did so-and-so do this? God calls in heaven and earth. He's calling in creation itself. The heavens, the shamayim, and the earth, the ha'eretz, all of that coming before Israel to testify against Israel. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord, Yahweh, has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. 
Again, remember I, I said you have to p- picture. When, this is Hebrew poetry. Picture the metaphors. Picture the images. You're supposed to have in your mind right now a father raising children and then the children rebelling against them. And then the other image is, this, this is awesome. It's a donkey. And God says, even the dumb donkey knows its master. It, the King James translation of this is, is kind of funny. Um, for those of you who know how donkeys translated um, in the Old English. But that's the point. Israel, a donkey knows its master, but you have forgotten your master. It's like children who forget their mom and dad. Now, in kind of a, an Eastern culture, a, a, more, a, a less kind of individualistic culture than American culture, this is super unthinkable. Like, I, I always, I, I kind of joke around, but like, if parents are talking and they say something like, my 14-year-old just said, told me yesterday that I wish you weren't my mom anymore. Like, in American culture, if you had a group of parents, like, a big chunk of them would be like, oh, yeah, they're teenagers now, 14 or 15. In a Jewish culture, to tell your mom or dad something like that is unthinkable. That's why the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament is so scandalous. For a child to rebel or to forget mom and dad was absolutely unthinkable. And it's, this, this image is given to, to invoke a sense of pain. And I don't make light of this issue because I know there's many of you here who, who know what that pain. This isn't just an image for you. You know what it's like to be estranged, to, to, to have a broken relationship with a son or a daughter. It's incredibly painful. This is, this is the image God brings up. Children have I brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, but the donk, and the donkey knows its master's crib. But you, O Israel, do not understand. Isaiah goes on. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, laden, picture someone burdened with, with a lot of sin and iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord and have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, third line, offspring of evildoers. I'm going to take a wild guess at what Hebrew word is used here. Zerah. God is speaking to his chosen people, the holy line, who is supposed to bring about the person who will defeat the serpent. And he says, you are not the offspring of Abraham. You are not the seed of Abraham. You are not the Zerah of Abraham. You are the seed of evil, which is going to be a massive center point to the plot. What happens when God's answer to evil becomes a part of the problem? It's like you ever watch one of those movies where it's like you think there's a good guy the whole time and he's always helpful and at the last second they turn evil. What happens when Israel, God's people that were designed to bless all the families of the earth, they themselves have eaten of the fruit. They're in Adam. You, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, you have forsaken the Lord. You've despised the Holy One of Israel. Now, I'm jumping to verse 10. In your reading plan and, and, on, and on your own, read all of chapter 1. Read it several times. We don't have time to deal with every single 
uh, verse because each one is its own image and picture, but I want to pick out the main ones. But on your own, read through chapter 1. Kind of hard to read. It's small, but it's one giant thought. So verse 10 and 11. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the bulls, the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. Who's God talking to again? Israel. What does he call them? Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in the biblical tradition, there's the story in the book of Genesis, and Sodom and Gomorrah is an actual historical place, but it is also, it's like representative of like human evil. There is mass sexual perversion in Sodom and Gomorrah. There is rape. There's, there's just massive abuse going on. There's oppression. Ezekiel actually adds to the list of problems that, that was wrong with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just like the most corrupt place you could think of. And to the chosen people, the seed of Abraham, God doesn't call them Israel. He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. And he tells them, I, I don't want your burnt offerings, your rams, your, your well-fed beasts, the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. These are all the religious activities that Israel was up to. In other words, Israel is doing all the right religious activity, but God still comes and says, you are the offspring of evil. Which if you're in church today, I always say this when the Bible talks like this, which if you're in church today, you got to stop and pause. That should, that should scare you. It should terrify you because it says you can do all the right religious activity and still be cut off from your maker. You can be in church every Sunday. You can go to small groups all the time. You could memorize the, the memorization challenge and do the reading plan. But God knows the heart. He knows your heart. And there'll never be enough religious activity to make you right before him. Israel is doing all the right external things, but there's still evil and corruption in the people. Verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds, and before my eyes cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Now, important word here. God is saying, Israel, you need to return to justice. The Hebrew word for justice here is mishpat. And mishpat is similar to the English word justice, but it, it's, it's a much bigger word. It has much more meaning. Um, the English word justice, it, it, it can mean the same things in Hebrew, but uh, when we think about justice, we, we often limit it to, at least me, this is my personality, um, and it reveals something about me. When I think of justice being served or justice happening, I primarily think about someone who is guilty getting punished, Right? It's like, they finally caught that guy, throw him in prison, justice is served. Um, or like, you're driving on the freeway and someone cuts you off, and you're like, that guy's going to get it one day. And then like, you drive 20 miles up 101, and all of a sudden you see some blue lights parked on the side, and you see that dude pulled over. Thank you, thank you, Lord. You're righteous and just in all your ways. That's what the Hebrew word justice means, just like it does English as well. But if you notice, 
In 17, it says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Justice, mishpat in Hebrew, is not merely punishing the guilty, but it's doing right to those who are not having their rights given to them. So the widows and the orphans were being taken advantage of. To do justice for them was to say, we are going to protect you. We're going to look out for you. Um, some of you, m- my wife and I, we, um, we support like a, a child. Um, like, I forget the organization, um, but uh, my wife's on top of it. Um, but, you know, you give like, you know, I... There's a little girl on the wall, and we, we send 30, 40, 50 bucks a month, and you, you feed the child. Um, in the Hebrew mind, that's doing justice to the child. Because, we'll touch on this a little bit later. Because in a Jewish and Christian worldview, human beings have intrinsic value because they're made in the image of God. They have rights. I'll get a little ahead of myself, but... Um, Our society believes in human rights, but we've removed the philosophical foundation for human rights, and mark my words, the the repercussions of that will be far more devastating than people realize. We're actually seeing it before, we're seeing the first first fruit fruit of that. But mishpat means to do justice, um, both to punish the guy who cut me off on the freeway and to look after the orphan or the widow. Isaiah 1.18. This is like the first sign of any type of good news. First sign of good news. Come now, let us reason, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They, they are, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now stop, picture that. Again, it's all poetry. It's, it's meant to make you think about something. Picture something like scarlet, red, and now it's being washed, and it's white as snow, something red like crimson, and now it's like a little baby lamb. They're powerful images. God says, this is what I want to do. Even though you have sinned, I want to make it right. I want to make it right. And there's just one other little attachment, though. Verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God says, Israel, I want to make things right. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to forgive you. But if you continue on in rebellion, you're going to pay the price. There's going to be consequence to this. And eventually there would be. The nation would become so corrupt, so weak, that foreign uh, invaders would come and destroy Israel hundreds of years from this point. Well, for some of them, it would be closer than that. Okay. I want to step back and talk about big picture stuff. Isaiah just talked to Israel. It's 1,500 years after Abraham and his people have been chosen, and he just goes off for like 16, 17 verses. We only saw a couple of them, and he just gives image after image of like, you've sinned, you've messed up, you're dumber than a donkey, even a donkey knows its masters. What wrong? I mean, just again and again and again. And there's, there's some massive kind of meta points that I'd like to address briefly. One, coming out of this, Isaiah, and this is very offensive to the modern mind, Isaiah reminds us that we are sinners. 
And, and in our culture, you don't ever want to, you know, it's like the worst thing you call someone is, is a sinner type of thing. But replace the word with something different. Someone who is a habitual, moral, like lawbreaker. Someone who does moral evil and moral wrong all the time. Isaiah says, this is you, Israel. Even God's people are, are sinful. They mess up again and again and again. And he makes it a moral issue. Now, why is this important? There has been an uptick, I would say, I mean, maybe longer than that, but I've seen it especially in the last five years, um, in Christian teaching and preaching, to emphasize, um, which is to emphasize the fact that human beings are broken and we're fragile and we're insecure, which all of that I affirm and I believe is true. But the emphasis follow me on this, the emphasis on what's wrong with the human condition becomes primarily about insecurities, how we feel about ourselves, and how we're, we're just, we're messed up, and, and uh, you know, I had, a hard, I had a hard childhood, and so that's why I do what I do. And trust me, th- there is a truth to that, but there's an overemphasis on that, and I see Christian teaching and preaching and understanding about the human condition begin to overlap with this, the same message that secular culture is giving. So when someone, when someone does moral evil, it's never their fault. It's, they're just insecure and they just need to be, to be shown some love. And there's, there's, trust me, there's truth to all of that. But Isaiah wants to remind us, yes, we're broken and insecure, but you know what? At the end of the day, you defiantly rejected God and you ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have said, I want to define good and evil in my own eyes. I want God out of my life and I want to sit on the throne. I want to be king and not him. And this is, I I understand this may be complex to kind of get your mind around, but this is so crucial here. Our culture is saying that everything is, that's wrong with humanity is primarily an issue of brokenness, hurt feelings, insecurities, and, and bad things happen in my life. So there's no moral accountability or responsibility. Genesis is so amazing. This is why you could read the book of Genesis your whole life and gain something new every time. In Genesis, God affirms that truth. When Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? they're naked and they're ashamed and they go hiding from God. So we are broken, fragile, insecure human beings. But the reason why we're broken, fragile, insecure beings is told to us a few verses earlier because we kicked God out of our lives and out of our culture. And the repercussions of that were too heavy for us. And what happens when sin grows, more brokenness happens. And there's more shame and there's more guilt and there's more insecurity. But what we're doing is we're separating the sin factor, the moral factor, from this. And that jumps over to the middle image. We as individuals and as a culture have become cozy with sin. We've become comfortable with it. It doesn't repulse us. We think as human beings that sin, you know, it's out there and evil's out there, but um, I'm a strong person. I can master, I, I can master it. Go back to Genesis. There's the story of Cain and Abel, and God tells Cain something profound. He says, sin is knocking at your door. It doesn't say knocking at your door. Remember what, what Genesis says? Crouching. Is that supposed to invoke an image? Sin is crouching at your door. 
and it's going to try to master you, and you can't let it do that. The image is, is rarely used in the Old Testament, the word, but it's, it's, an, it's an image that it's used of an animal. So God says sin. What is it doing at your door? It's, think of like an animal. What do animals that crouch, what, what type of animals typically do that? Think of the predator slowly creeping on its prey, not scaring it, and then before it's too late, the attack. Our culture and us as individuals, we get cozy with this evil, with sin, and we think it's not going to get us, and then right when we think we're comfortable, it grabs a hold of us, and it's too late. For those of you who have this in your, in your past, I don't bring this up to cause pain or, or guilt, but it is the perfect illustration to show you how deadly this stuff is. How many marriages were ruined by innocent flirting in the workplace? Just slow, innocent flirting, nothing big, nothing too bad, and then gets a little bit more affectionate, then there's a longer hug goodbye, maybe a longer embrace after three years of innocent flirting, and then, and then all of a sudden you have in, immense feelings for another individual. And you thought it would never turn into anything crazy. You say, no, no, I'm just being nice. You never thought it would turn into adultery. But it did. That's the image. It's the predator. It's very slow, and before you know it, it attacks. And it doesn't just apply to that type of sin. It applies to everything. It's like, um, you know, there's always videos online of like someone encountering a bear in the wild. And like, the smart person does what? Hey, let's go the other way. And not, you're not supposed to like run the, like, but, but the, the point is there's always some video, somebody online, oh, look at it. Come here, son. Come here. Let's, let's. And then, oh, look, it's a mama bear with babies. Go pet the baby. You don't get cozy with the wild beast. It will kill you. That is the image in Genesis about sin. It's crouching, ready to attack. And again, our culture as a whole has become cozy with evil and sin, and we thought that we can master it and keep it in control. And I'm telling you, every morning I wake up and I look just for like the crazy stuff that's going on in, the, in, in, in not the, only the world, but our specific cultural context. It is nuts. It is nuts. Now, uh, you might, you know, what, what I joke around with is like, like 10 years ago, there would be like the super crazy fundamentalist uh, Christian leader who would be like, you know, my favorite line, world's going to hell in a handbasket, and he would tell you, oh, you're not going to believe, like in five, ten years, you won't know, you, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, you have no idea, you give an inch and this is going to happen. And I was talking with a couple friends the other day, and I go, the, the, that, per, that crazy old man who I thought was like nuts, he's right. It's, it's, it's just craziness. Our culture got cozy with this stuff, and now it's running rampant. 
The panther has struck, the bear has attacked. See, one of the things, and this is what I hinted at earlier, is we've had the philosophical foundations of our culture and society slowly be removed. So think of a ruler, like a 12-inch, you know, little wooden ruler that, you know, back in the day you get smacked with from the teacher. Um, it's before my day. I heard about it. It's one of those folktales, legends, that everyone says is true, but I have no proof of it. And they say, man, no, the teachers used to, son, you don't even know a teacher used to call me in and just, eh. I don't know. Now they can't even tell you you're wrong. And I'm, I, I'm exaggerating. That's not always true. But you're seeing in instances of stuff like that before our very eyes. And man, I do not, and teachers have one of the most difficult jobs, especially in the, the current climate, man. It's, it's, that's a battle. So if you do that, you can tell them on the next burrito Sunday, I said you can have a free burrito if you're, you're a teacher. Um, say Greg said, Greg, Greg said that. I don't want to, um, he'll pay for it. So Greg will pay for it. Okay. So there's a ruler. Picture the ruler. Before we had, just as a kind of culture and civilization, a ruler and that we would measure things with. Um, and I'm talking specifically about morality, right and wrong issues. We had a ruler. And even if you weren't, weren't a Christian, as a worldview sort of issue, the vast majority of people in the, the current culture had sort of adopted a a worldview where there was an objective right and wrong. We, we believe this is wrong all the time, no matter what. And you would measure things by, by that. And you would teach people that racism is wrong. And the little kid would say, why is racism wrong? And you would say, well, because God made all people equal. You see, behind the idea that racism is wrong or economic injustice is wrong, there's a philosophical foundation well, God cares for the orphan. That's why you don't mistreat the orphan. God, God believes, God's word tells us all people are made in his image. All people are made in his image. Everybody. What, what slowly started to happen was the ruler remo- was removed, the measuring stick, the measuring rod, but then you keep saying the same m- m- moral stuff. So you tell people, racism is wrong, racism is wrong, racism is wrong. But our culture removed the foundation. And I gave a sermon two, years, two three years ago, and I said, I think race issues are going to explode like never before because we have a whole culture that's been told things like racism is wrong, sexism is wrong, this is, this is how you should treat men, gender issues, all this stuff. But the reason, the philosophical reasons are removed. I said, that's going to be bad. That's going to be bad. And man, we are not doing a good job on a lot of issues right now. And the church needs to be the moral compass and remind people of right and wrong and the reasons why we think things are right and wrong. We're in a, in a very dangerous place. And I say that not like lightly. Everyone knows that, that, that I'm not one to, to use a bunch of scare tactics all the time and be like, oh, the, the culture is going to fall apart tomorrow. But I'm saying right now, philosophically, when the foundations for our culture have been removed, the consequences of that, we're in next decade matters. 
It really, really does. And so the church needs to do a better job on all of these issues. We need to be more articulate on why we believe what we believe more than ever before on all, of the, on, on, on all issues because the world uh, is in desperate need of it. Now what happens though is when you remove sort of the philosophical underpinnings of something, it's like having the ground removed from underneath your feet. You have nowhere, you have nowhere to stand. Everything's up in the air. Everything becomes relative. Um, there's, there, there's no true grounding for everything. And what happens when everything becomes relative, nothing can give ultimate meaning. I'm talking about like transcendent ultimate meaning. Like if, if a young person asks me, like, what am I here for? What's my purpose in life? I can tell them, look, there is a God who made you in his image. He loves you. He loves you so much. He died for you. He's given you a purpose here on this earth. It is to worship him and to serve him and to be an image bearer, to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. I can give these, this ultimate meaning for life. What happens when we get cozy with sin and those foundations are removed? You cannot talk about ultimate meaning anymore. And so purpose is removed from our culture. And right now, what I'm observing is a culture that lacks purpose, and therefore we're all running around like zombies looking for the first thing that will satisfy our appetite. A zombie doesn't think about when it's breakfast time, doesn't think about what's for dinner. Zombie just says, I need food, in this case, another human. Um, I need it, which actually, that's more fitting than I thought. Um, Whatever is the immediate appetite, the immediate thing, it has to be satisfied. But you're not giving any long-term purpose or meaning. You're jumping from one satisfaction to another. That becomes your God. And so right now in our culture, we have a bunch of zombies trying to find purpose. And they'll find purpose in the first thing that will give them any ounce of satisfaction. Any ounce of satisfaction. Pick, pick your God. Sex, drug, entertainment, reputation, Whatever it is, you're running around trying to find the first thing that will give your life meaning and purpose. And here's the thing. All of those things end up sucking the life, meaning, and purpose out of you anyway. And you become less and less human and you become more and more zombie-like. You're searching for purpose. In Romans chapter 1, um, and if, if, by the way, I realize if this is your first time here, this is a, a way more philosophical of a sermon than usual, but, but it's... This is important. Uh, Paul the Apostle talks about this, about the human condition in Romans chapter 1. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, God's got a problem with humanity because humanity is suppressing the truth. They, They don't want to acknowledge God and they keep suppressing it and suppressing it and suppressing it and they don't have any excuse for it. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming to be wise, humanity has become 
fools, and they've exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, the transcendent one, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we have traded out God, the transcendent grounds, the, the philosophical foundation for meaning and purpose and morality. We've removed him and set up little mini-gods that are a part of creation. And again, pick, pick the idol. Whatever it is, money, sex, fame, reputation, purpose, a relationship, whatever it is, we've replaced that God with something counterfeit, and it cannot satisfy. It cannot give meaning and purpose. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, this is, this is deep and profound, what, what Paul says. Therefore, God gave them up. God does not say, oh, there's, there's a culture and a people, and they've rejected me, and, and there's all this sin going on, and so I'm going to come and destroy them. In Romans, the punishment is God gives them up to their own desires. You get what you want. Have you ever had... You know someone was choosing a wrong path and you knew it would hurt them, but they refused to go the other way. And so at the end of the day, you only have to give, you have to give them up to their own desires. In Romans 1, the punishment for this type of idolatry is God handing us over to our own desires. And again, trust me, the consequences and repercussions of that for our culture are far greater than most people realize and understand. You want to live like this? America, you want to, you want to live like this? Go ahead. It all crumbles. Therefore, God gave them up. Now, uh, there's a song I like by a band called Thrice, one of my favorite bands. Uh, it's entitled, All the World is Mad. Um, and it is like, you should listen to it. It is like a beautiful, poetic w- way of saying, like, like, as a whole, our world has gone nuts. Um, and you have to ask yourself, as, as a Christian, like, what is, what is your response to this? And uh, there's always a temptation because we all sort of think we're heroes in the story rather than understanding Jesus is the only hero in the story. We, we think we're going to go on some like massive moral crusade and we're going to, you know, attack every type of injustice that's wrong and trying to give ourselves meaning again because we lack meaning and purpose, um, which, which fighting injustice and, and, and wrong, that, that's a good thing. What I propose, and this is the only application, only point, any takeaway, and then we're going to transition into a time of worship, reflection, and hopefully repentance, is before you think you're going to go change Western civilization or culture, how about you start with yourself? There's a psychologist um, that I listen to, he's famous on YouTube, named Jordan Jordan Peterson, and uh, one of the lines he says, it's so good, he's like, oh, you want to go change the world? You're 19 and you think you're going to go change the world? How about you start with making your bed? And his point is not just keep making your bed. He actually thinks you can go change the world and make significant difference. But everyone wants to bypass 
They want to be a hero. It's like there's, you know, the first 15 minutes of every superhero movie tells the story of how they became a superhero. Everyone just wants to be a superhero without getting bit by the spider. And so here's my thing if you're, if you're a Christian here today is where is the venom of the serpent running through your veins? Where does the serpent still have control? Where have you become cozy with sin? What is it? I want you to think about specific things in your life right now. What do you need to to repent of in your life? Are there things that, that you know are going against the will of God, but you've just got cozy with sin? What are they? Name them in your head right now. Worship team's going to come up, and we're going we're gonna to transition into a time of, of worship, but I want it to also be a time of reflection and repentance. What are those things? And as, as we sing to Jesus, as we sing and praise him, I want you to, to say, God, I, I'm struggling with this. I am broken, and I am insecure, and this has wounded me, but I also know that, that I'm treasonous. I've rebelled against my good creator king, All of those things are true, God. I I need you to come and deliver me from this thing. And what are they? Maybe one, two, three things. But I I, I know with certainty that every single person in this room has got at least one. And if you have not one single thing in your life that is sinful, that you know you've become cozy with, I submit to you your sin is pride. And you might want to talk to God about that. The beauty of Isaiah is that there's this words of doom and destruction. You've forgotten God. You don't know who you are. But then God opens up his hand and says, I can take your sin, which is red like scarlet, and I can make it white as snow. He's a good and gracious and forgiving God. Adam and Eve sinned, and they ran from God in the garden. Who went chasing after them? God. Why are you hiding from me? Let's pray. Father God, um, in this time, I pray that your spirit would, would convict us. What, what, are, what are the things that we need to give to you in the, these moments, Lord? And I pray that as we do those, we would be more equipped as Christians to, to be a moral compass, to be a shining light in, in our culture, that we would be a people of, of love and mercy and kindness and, and also justice, and that people would see Christians as, as moral examples. And I know that's going to take, take a miracle in, in our context, but Lord, we believe in you, and we pray for that, and we pray for, for a genuine um, revival of, of our spirits, both individually and corporately, Lord. We thank you that no matter what our sins are today, you are gracious, and you can wash them away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.